0: We want to spend some time tonight as we draw our time to a close in looking at the final message on Roman Catholicism. And as we finish our discussion of Roman Catholicism, let me remind you that thus far we have spoken first about their doctrine of salvation, which occurred in the Part one of our discussion, and then their foundational teachings or their so called seven sacraments, which occupied us in part two of our message. And we have dealt with at length these crucial topics because all of these items are ways and means in which Catholics attempt to be accepted by God. And if you are a person, who is a faithful Roman Catholic, you must affirm their teaching on justification. And you must be faithful to partake in each of the seven sacraments in order to become right with God. And this is why we have spent so much time dissecting their theology to understand its roots and the implications of what they believe and what they teach. And if we have been correct in this, then we are in agreement with the statement of William Webster, who has written really a fine, fine book called Salvation, the Bible, and Roman Catholicism. And if you don't have this copy, it's a very, very handy volume. It is published by the Banner of Truth Trust. It was copyrighted in 1990 by William Webster, who for many years was a businessman in Memphis and is now in a place aptly called Battleground, Washington. And as a former Roman Catholic, he's written a very, very excellent book, which I would encourage you to pick up and read to, again, understand the basic tenets of Roman Catholicism. And this is what he has said in this excellent book. He said, "...it's teaching on the priesthood, that is the Roman Catholic Church, sin, confession, penance, indulgences, purgatory, and forgiveness... Is a direct contradiction of the teaching of the Bible. Rome teaches faith in Jesus Christ plus faith in a church and human merit or works if we are to receive forgiveness and acceptance with God. By contrast, the Bible teaches faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And he's right. For our study tonight, as we conclude this study of Roman Catholicism, I want us to occupy ourselves with three more aspects of Roman Catholic doctrine, which is of major importance to them, and something I think in which we ought to understand very fully. The first is going to be a look at the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And then secondly, we'll look at the Roman Catholic doctrine of indulgences, and then, thirdly and finally, we'll talk about the Roman Catholic doctrine, excuse me, of the, venera- <coughs> me, of the veneration of Mary as well as other saints. Well, let's talk first of all about the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. How many of you have heard that word, purgatory, as taught by the Roman Catholic Church? How many of you would say that you know what it means? All right, there's a few of you that would say you know what it means. Here is the way the Roman Catholic Church defines purgatory. It is a temporary hell with a sole purpose of working off the temporal punishment of one's personal sins. That's what it is. It is a place or a state in which are detained the souls of those who die in grace, in friendship with God, but with the blemish of venial sin or with temporal debt for sin unpaid. In other words, you live your life as a Roman Catholic and you have sins in which you commit. And even after you are involved in the sacrament of penance, uh, where you go to a Roman Catholic priest, for instance, and you uh, confess to that priest that you have sinned against the Lord and against other people, And even after that time, you will commit other sins. Sins that are called temporal sins. Sometimes called venial sins as opposed to mortal sins. And you will then, because you are unable to confess all of those, and you're unable to have all of those sins expiated or atoned for, you will then, upon death, as almost every Roman Catholic will affirm and almost every Roman Catholic will go, to a place called purgatory in which your soul is then further purged and cleansed and readied for your eternal union with God in heaven. Now, I'm quoting, as I quote from several of these sources, right from their Catholic documents. For For instance, one Catholic apologist, Carl Keating, says this, quote, Purgatory is a defined doctrine of the Catholic faith. As a Catholic, you must believe it. Unquote. In other words, if you're going to call yourself a faithful Catholic, then you must believe in the doctrine of purgatory. In one sense, the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory completes the process of justification for the sinner in Roman Catholic theology. You remember I said to you in the very first part of our message series on defending your faith against Roman Catholics, I said to you that the doctrine of justification for them is not a point in time. It's not an instantaneous declaration by God that you are now uh, declared righteous in God's sight on the basis of Christ's righteousness on your behalf. But they believe that justification is a process. And it starts with the first sacrament, the sacrament of baptism. And you throughout the whole of your life as a Roman Catholic are becoming justified in God's sight, because of all the things that you do, plus the work of Christ on the cross. And so, they believe that purgatory, even after death, is a further opportunity for you to continue to be justified, so that ultimately, once all of this purging has occurred, even as you are in this suspended death state, that you are then purged completely so that you can enjoy this full justification and you can enjoy your union, your friendship with God ultimately in heaven. And, of course, the very famous doctrinal statement, the Council of Trent, which was a reaction against uh, the Reformers, they teach the following in Canon 30, quote, If anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received, to every penitent sinner the guilt is remitted, that means taken away, and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. Unquote. Here's what they're saying. If you believe that your sins can be atoned for simply and only by Christ, so that through His death and not through your own works and your own merits, and even by saying no to purgatory and by saying that it is God alone who justifies on the basis of Christ's righteousness, if you believe that and if you disregard purgatory and if you say all of your sins can be wiped away by the blood of Christ, then you are to be anathema, cursed, damned. The New Catholic Catechism says this about purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The Pocket Catholic Dictionary says it is an intermediate state, this purgatory, in which the departed souls can atone for unforgiven sins before receiving their final reward. You see, even after death, Roman Catholics are continuing to work for the opportunity to be accepted by God. You see, they know that no person can be perfect. And because you're continually working toward perfection, if you don't affirm the righteousness of Christ being credited to your account, then the only thing you can hope to do is continue to work off your sins even throughout the life of a person and even in his death. That's the only way a person could ever hope to be accepted by God. The Council of Trent taught that if someone sins after their sacrament of baptism, that even when these sins are forgiven through that sacrament of penance, that the temporal punishments remain, and you would therefore need to be taken care of after death in purgatory. And you say, well, where would they come up with this? What kind of verses in the Bible might they see this doctrine coming to the fore? Well, for instance, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And this is a passage in which they would love to quote, saying this, if not explicitly so, implies the doctrine of purgatory. Matthew 5. You know this is, of course, in the context where there might be an unreconciled relationship between you and another brother. For in verse 23 it says... If you are presenting your offering at the altar, altar and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly, verse 25, with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. And then this key verse, verse 26, truly I say to you, you will not come out of there prison until you have paid up the last cent. Now, can you see where they might come up with a doctrine of purgatory there? They would say, if, for instance, you have sins in your life, if you have unconfessed sin in your heart and you are not able to expiate those sins, deal with those sins, atone for those sins in this life, uh, you'll have to go to purgatory and you'll have to pay back every last and that's what they say. Other passages they would use to say, you see, it's not as mysterious or obscure as people would make it out to be. There is a doctrine of purgatory. Now, how does a person, if he's in purgatory, attempt to purge his sins? I mean, if you're, if you're in this sort of suspended, animated state at death in purgatory, and yet you're somehow able to do something Or, if you're not able to do something, how does a family member still left on earth deal with you, a loved one, who has gone on before them, who has died? How how might they help you in the matter of you being released from purgatory? For that also is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. That a loved one could even be involved while on earth, helping you take years off this purgatorial state. How might that happen? Well, for the individual, first of all, purgatory could mean your own suffering by the physical pain of being involved in the burning fire of purgatory. It sounds a lot like hell. Uh, It has been true that in later years, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has tended to move away from the idea of purgatory having this sort of burning fire sensation and the physical pain of suffering, but it is still true in all of their documents That a person, in order to atone for his sins, continue to be purged and cleansed, would actually suffer physical pain by the burning fire of the sensation of that kind of thing in this purgatorial state. And so, uh, through the experience of a number of years possibly, you would then go through the process of having your sins forgiven through something like that. Now, for... One reason or another, if you're unable to pay for your own sins, whether on earth or here, then you can make up for it in purgatory. In other words, there's sort of a second chance gospel in the Roman Catholic tradition so that you might go through purgatory and there atone for your sins in some way. Now, if you have a loved one in purgatory, and maybe you looked at that person's life and you said, boy, there wasn't a lot of good that I saw there at all. I know they're in purgatory and I know they're going to be there for a long time. How can I help this loved one? Well, they have a number of ways you can do it. Prayers. You can pray for people who are in purgatory. You can give money to the church. That will take some measure of years based on what the priest or some of the documents of the Catholic Church would tell you. A couple of years for this amount, a couple of years for that amount. You can perform good works of some sort. You can be involved in uh, service and attendance at Mass, and you can serve in that way. One of the most important ways and one of the uh, most crucial ways is that you can ask for a priest to perform a Mass on behalf of your dead loved one, and this sort of has optimum results for someone who might be rescued from this purgatorial state. Now, with all of that being said, And with some of these implications, like Matthew 5.26, what's the biblical refutation of something like that? I mean, is purgatory really a biblical idea? Well, look back at Matthew 5.26. Let's turn the corner a bit and say, what about some of these things? What does the Bible have to say? Well, first of all, the thing that you probably noticed, as I did when I looked at this passage, is this talking at all about purgatory? Now, is this talking at all about uh, someone being involved in some sort of uh, suspended post-death state, in a place called purgatory, in which you're paying off the sins that you committed? No. This context has absolutely nothing to do with people who are dead, and it has everything to do with people who are alive. Notice the context. You have uh, something wrong between yourself and a brother. You're leaving your offering. You're going to that person. You're being reconciled. And then in verse uh, verse 25, you're making friends quickly with your opponent at law. In other words, there's a lawsuit going on. And it's with two people who are alive, not somebody who's dead. And it says, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Folks, we're talking about a real prison here. We're talking about a prison that is encasing people who are alive. We're not talking about something that happens post-death. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. In other words, it seems as though the context is suggesting that maybe you defrauded such a person. And maybe they've taken you to court to recover this money, and because you are either refusing to pay it back, or you're disputing the facts of the matter, you're going before a judge, and the judge is saying, you owe this money. And if you're unwilling, or cannot pay this money back, then you're going to have to spend time in prison, a real prison, a prison in this life, for which you're going to pay back the last cent, either by your stay in that prison, by paying off your debts, or by your work in that prison where you're going to work off your debts. This has nothing whatsoever to do with purgatory. Just because the verse says you will pay up the last cent has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with the idea that you're paying off something in order to receive eternal life. Nothing whatsoever to do with that. If that were true, beloved, then what would be the sense of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that, what? Not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. The, the whole issue of Matthew 5 is completely contrary to the other passages on the free offer of the gospel and the free grace of the gospel of God, if in fact it's talking about working uh, to eliminate your sins, especially post-death. There's absolutely nothing to do with these things. Salvation, beloved, is that which God grants to us by a gift, a gift of faith and repentance, and that, based on the fact that Christ has done the work of redemption on the cross already, and there's absolutely nothing we could do to add to His redemptive work. Nothing. In John chapter 17, it makes it very, very clear that Jesus has finished the work of redemption. Notice John chapter 17, verse 4 says so very, very clearly, I glorified you on the earth, Jesus speaking, having accomplished the work which you, the Father, have given me to do. Do you see it there? Having accomplished the work you have given me to do. That flies so far in the face of the idea of purgatory, let alone the idea of trying to do good works in this life that the Roman Catholic doctrine cannot be substantiated by any biblical account. You remember in John chapter 19, verse 30, you remember what Jesus said there? It is finished. The work of redemption is done. One word in the Greek text. Tetelestai. It's done. It's accomplished. You see, if you open the door... For an idea that says that someone can work off their sins by something they do in life or in post-death, then what have you done to a passage like this? What you've really said is, it is not finished. And I have to do something continually. And frankly, to say something Like I'm going to have to be in purgatory and while I'm there, or my loved ones on my behalf are working there or working on my behalf so that I can work years off my stay in this place smacks of the most heretical kind of view of salvation. No, it cannot be substantiated. Romans 3. There is no work. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. No man does good. No man seeks after God. No one is, is adding to or contributing to his own salvation. It is absolutely irreconcilable with the Bible. In Second Corinthians chapter 5, I might add this as well, regarding the, the idea of some sort of post-death experience in a place called purgatory. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. You say, how does that relate to the issue of purgatory? Well, what does the verse say? If you are absent from the body, in this case the body talking about this sort of earthly tent that we have, this physical body uh, for which we presently reside, if I am absent from the body, what does the Bible say? I'm with the Lord. So am I in purgatory if I'm absent from the body? No. You see, Roman Catholics believe that once you die, your body, like Protestants, goes to the dust of the ground. And so they say your spirit is going to purgatory. And if your spirit is in purgatory, then Paul's words do not make sense here. Because he says so very clearly, if you are absent from that body, you are at home with the Lord. By the way, in verse 18 of the same chapter, it talks about the fact that God is reconciling believers through Christ. And he says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. And then this great statement, this great theology of the atonement, He made Him, that's Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Oh, I love that phrase. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see any work On the part of the believer in that verse? No. It's the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. There's nothing I can do. And in Hebrews 10.14, it says that the atonement of Christ happened once. Can you imagine? A doctrine that says Christ did a work on the cross, and then I'm continuing to contribute to that, not only in life, but post-death in purgatory. I'm contributing to the atoning work of the relinquishing or remitting or the putting away of my own sins. No. No, the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory cannot be substantiated by the Word of God. 1 John seven. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, all sin. You see, once Christ's work on the cross has been credited to you, all your sins have been forgiven, all of them. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Philippians uh, chapter 3, didn't Paul himself say that I am looking for this, this atonement and it is through faith. It's not through my work. It's not through something I'm doing, whether it's in this life or in purgatory. It absolutely cannot happen. And then one last thing about this issue of purgatory before we go on to the second indulgence. Don't you think that this particular doctrine, this doctrine of purgatory, flies absolutely in the face of the idea of communicating with the dead? You remember what it says in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, about this very thing, about communication with the dead? Verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone, anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord." And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. The, the idea of purgatory and the idea of loved ones praying to the dead, praying for the dead, doing works on behalf of the dead for the dead themselves to somehow be communicating through the remission of their own sins by their own prayers, by their own good works in this place called purgatory, or by their own expiation, by the physical sensation of experiencing pain through fire and communicating either back to their loved ones here. All of that is absolutely forbidden by Scripture. Number two. Number two, the Roman Catholic doctrine of indulgence. Sometimes this is called the treasury of the church or the treasury of merit. What is indulgences? What does that really mean? Of course, we have heard a lot about that in the history books because we've studied the history of Martin Luther and he was very much against the selling of indulgences. But what does it mean? What was it that the Roman Catholic church began to teach about this? Well, here's what they teach. They teach that there were... A limitless, vast amount of good works that were done, that were given to the church by the work of Jesus Christ, by the work of Mary, and by the work of other saints. And because these good works have been vouchsafed, have been given to us for use, then we can draw upon those things when we do what we need to do in order to receive such indulgences for our own salvation. That's what they're talking about. These good works can be accessed by Roman Catholics in their time of need. And they say that because these indulgences are so limitless a supply, they'll never dry up, they'll never be exhausted that these indulgences can be drawn upon by people who are remaining on the earth. For instance, when a Roman Catholic saint does all kinds of good work, when Mary did her good works, when Christ did His good works on earth, then this whole supply of good works came to accrue To those who would but reach out and grab a hold of them by their own good works, needing those indulgences to help them secure their justification. That's what it means. And by the way, there are two kinds of indulgences. There's one that's called partial indulgences. And there's something called plenary or plenary, which is the word for all. And someone says, uh, I'm going to go to this conference, and -and so-and-so is speaking at the plenary sessions. That means that the person is speaking to all of the people gathered at once. And there is a partial indulgence. And what does that mean? Well, it means that you can have some good works uh, that have been done by these other entities. You can have these good works to your account if you would do certain things. But it's only partial indulgences. It can only accrue to you to some degree. If you are really in need and you want the plenary indulgences, then you have to do far more. You say, well, what do you do to receive a partial indulgence? Here's what you must do. For instance, you could make the symbol of the sign of the cross. You know how Catholics do that? They make a symbol of the sign of the cross. That could grant you, and I'm not making this up, approximately three years off your time in purgatory. If you were to continually think of the sign of the cross, and then perform that sign of the cross, you could actually add uh, three years or take three years off of your own purgatory. Secondly, you could continually recite the rosary in a family group setting. And that could secure for you a partial indulgence of of ten years. Thirdly, you could uh, visit a Catholic shrine. That's one way to gain a partial indulgence. Now you know why... Catholic people are going to these shrines all around the world. Did you know, did you realize that indulgences are still for sale? Now, it may be that Catholics bristle at such a thing and say, no, they're not for sale. We believe in them, but we don't believe in the merchandising of indulgences. Well, if that were the case, then why is it then that people are charging money for people to go to some of these shrines? And then what happens to that money? Well, that person, as they gain that money, gives that money to the church, and then they themselves will have the opportunity because of those good works and because of more money coming into the Roman Catholic Church, they themselves will be involved in some of these indulgences and they will accrue to their behalf. By the way, if someone were to say to you as a Roman Catholic, oh, we don't believe in indulgences anymore. Well, that's just not true. On page 411 of the Catholic Catechism, this is what it says. The more you are involved in indulgences in this life, the less temporal punishments you will have in purgatory. Question 1400 of the question and answer Catholic Catechism says, how can we make up for sin? That's the question. Here's the catechetical answer. The answer is, we can make up for sin through the sorrows and trials of life, including the pain of death, or through the purifying penalties in the life beyond sin can also be expiated through indulgences. I mean, does this shock you? I mean, this is a, this is an incredible thing they're saying here. Sins being expiated Likewise, question 1401. How do indulgences remove temporal punishment? The answer, indulgences remove temporal punishment through the the church's right to dispose the merits of Christ to her members. The Savior won the graces of expiation for sinners by His passion and death. The church administers these benefits in consideration of the prayers and good works performed by the faithful. It's what they believe. It's what they say. Indulgences are a major, major kudo for Catholics. And by the way, indulgences have been reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed in the Catholic Church, even as late as 1967, in a document called the Indulgentarium Doctrina of Paul VI, the 1968 New Encaridion, which means handbook or or workbook of indulgences, which was issued by the uh, Sacred Apostolic Penitentiary, that's not a prison. That means those who are penitent. And the 1983 new code of canon law of the Roman Catholic Church. As late as 1983, in the canon law of the Roman Catholic Church, indulgences are encouraged. You say, well, that's the partial endurance, uh, indulgence. What about the plenary indulgence? Well, here's what you must be involved in. Number one, sacramental confession. You must be regularly involved in confession. Number two, Eucharistic communion. You must be faithful in the receiving of communion. And thirdly, you must pray for the Pope. And you also, fourthly, must abstain from all known willful sin, including the enjoyments of this life. It's sort of a, a monastic way of living within the Roman Catholic Church that you're denying yourself to such a degree because you are desperately looking for the plenary indulgences. All of them. No doubt so that you would not spend hardly any time at all in purgatory. Well, what's the the Bible say about such things? Well, first of all, nothing. There's nothing in the Bible about indulgences. No matter how hard the Roman Catholic Church would, would try to say it does. You remember that this was in fact one of the things for which Martin Luther was most crucially involved in the laboring of the writing of the 95 theses and then the nailing of those theses to the door at Wittenberg. In fact, I picked up this week Luther's 95 thesis, which has been very helpfully translated into English and updated in our language. This is what Luther says, for example, about this idea of indulgences. For instance, thesis 21. Thus... Those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. Now, you know why, if that was Thesis 21 uh, in the 95, why he might be looked upon as someone who was, uh, how shall we say, hedging against the cash cow in Thesis 27, Luther said, They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Imagine Luther uh, made a few people upset with uh, those theses. No. The issue is the Bible does not address it. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, would attempt to say that it does. For instance, turn in your Bible to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Because one of the things that I want to say is that the Roman Catholic Church is not attempting to build a case from completely and only the ex-cathedra statements of papal infallibility. They do attempt at times, and in times very studiously so, to build a biblical case for some of these things. And for instance, they would go to Job 1.5. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all as children. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe the Roman Catholics would have a point here. Maybe they would say, you see, Job did it. Job actually offered sacrifices, offerings, on behalf of his sons, on behalf of his family. Oh, maybe there is something to this idea of an indulgence. Something done on behalf of someone else. But what is it talking about here? Well, one of the things we have to understand is that there's a difference between passages which are prescriptive and passages which are descriptive. This is a passage of a descriptive nature. This is what Job was described as doing. Was he ever commanded to do this? I can't find that. Was it a a practice in that time? Surely it was. But is this equal to the idea of indulgences, that I'm actually going to do something on behalf of a dead relative? Obviously, his children were not dead at this particular point. And in fact... If this were the case, and if the Roman Catholics were right about this, then how would we understand Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20? The person whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You see, it's not... It's not true that Job was doing something that had anything remotely connected to the idea of indulgences. Not at all. Ezekiel says very clearly that people are responsible for their own sins. You say, well, doesn't it also say at some other juncture that the sins will be visited upon uh, the second and third generation? What's that talking about? Uh, That's not talking about genetics even. What it's talking about is the issue that there is sinful patterns in people's lives for which if fathers are sinful and they're setting a bad example, that that kind of example as a training model on how to sin and do the wrong things can definitely be picked up by children and their children as well. You have that in your own life, in your own parenting. I have that in my own life. They're sinful habits, sinful tendencies. It's not genetic. It's simply saying that if you do sinful things and if your kids see those things and they start to do those things, then their kids will see you doing those things and they'll pick up on those things and then you'll have a habit pattern of sin in one way or another. But it's not talking about the idea that sins are actually visited as though it's somehow genetic or certainly as though it's somehow an issue of indulgences that need to be made on behalf of your relatives. Sometimes they would go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and they would say, Well, uh, this seems to be something uh, that speaks of the idea of indulgences. Here's what Paul says I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. They say, Well, see, Paul is actually talking about doing something for the souls of the Corinthians. Well, what's he talking about? What's he saying? Well, first of all, it's certainly not talking about anybody who's in purgatory, right? Paul is not saying, I'm going to expend myself for the souls of those brethren who have already died and have gone to purgatory, and I'm now working feverishly to maintain some sort of expiation process for these dead believers who are in purgatory. No, again, it's talking about living souls, living believers, not dead ones. And all he's simply saying here is that I'm working in ministry on your behalf. not saying I'm working somehow in an expi- expiative sense. No. No human being, no sinful man like Paul, as great as he was, he was still sinful and could not atone, expiate, work on behalf of anyone's sins for which then ultimately God would say, well, then I forgive you for some of those things because of what Paul did on your behalf. Not at all. Sometimes they'll even appeal to Galatians 6.2 when it says, bear one another's burdens. When they say, see, now I can bear for the burden of my loved one who's gone on to purgatory. And Galatians 6.2 gives me a biblical basis. Well, apparently they miss verse 5 because it says, each man will bear his own load. No, it's talking about helping a Christian friend. It's talking about someone who's been caught in a trap. Uh, They've been unaware that sin was lurking and they fell into a sin. And now we who are spiritual, uh, those who are needing to help such a one, we come alongside them, we help them, we pick them up, we bear them up. It's talking about one live believer to another live believer, not a live believer to a dead believer in purgatory. No, not at all. And in fact, one of the things that I think is the clearest, Colossians 2.13 says... He made you alive together with Him, that's your salvation, that's your conversion, having forgiven us all our transgressions. All my transgressions are forgiven if I know Jesus Christ personally. I don't have to work to atone for any of them, and the reason why is because I couldn't. I could never do that. How could I ever, on my own behalf or on somebody else's behalf, as sinful as I am, ever seek to atone for anybody else's sins? I could never do that by by no matter or measure of how good a work I'm able to do. No, there's really nothing here. Webster again rightly says, Scripture nowhere teaches the doctrine of purgatory. That again is an arbitrary teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. In contrast, the Bible teaches that when an individual comes to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, he is immediately set free from all judgment, punishment and condemnation for sin. He is immediately given the gift of eternal life and may have the absolute assurance that he will go to heaven when he dies. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 5.24 When a person believes in Jesus Christ, his sins are completely dealt with and the punishment due for them paid in full. And boy, aren't you glad of that? I mean, what a life to live if I thought that either in life or in purgatorial death, I was having to work to make sure that I could be right with God and ultimately accepted by God. What a a hideous kind of life. Especially for one who knows their sinfulness so well. Thirdly and last, the Roman Catholic doctrine of the veneration of Mary. Very quickly on this, because you probably know about this doctrine more than purgatory and indulgences. What do we know about Mary? Well, first of all, we know that Mary is seen in Roman Catholic theology as sinless. Did you know that? Mary is seen in Roman Catholic theology as sinless. Spotless. She is seen as holy. And in fact, according to Pope Pius IX, Mary, by his doctrine conceived, no pun intended, was immaculately conceived herself. That is... Not that Mary herself, when she birthed Christ, was sinless, but that Mary, when she was conceived by her mother, was immaculately conceived, so that she would not have the penalty of sin in her own human stream, her blood, her line. Why would you think that that would need to be a Roman Catholic doctrine? Well, think about it. You have to back up on this. If Mary is going to be seen as a person to be devoted to be prayed to, to be venerated, and in my judgment, as the Roman Catholics vigorously argue against, to be worshipped. And if you're going to have a person like that, you better be so holy, so spotless, so sinless, that even in your natural birth, you were immaculately conceived. And that's exactly what they came up with as a doctrine. She was without original or inherited sin being passed down to her. And they, of course, teach that she was a perpetual virgin after the birth of Jesus. Now, how she could be a virgin after having birthed a child, I don't know. But that's what they teach. She was perpetually, both before and after the birth of Christ, a virgin. In other words, she never had any other children. She has supposedly appeared many times around the world, Countless shrines have been erected on her behalf. You might know them as the apparitions of Mary. The appearances of Mary. That she's actually come back to the earth in some sort of ethereal condition. Some sort of apparition. And she is actually calling on faithful Catholics to pray to her. Pray actually to her. You know that she has many titles in Roman Catholic theology? Here are some of them. Mother of God. Mother of the Church co-redemptrix, co-redeemer of mankind, and she's also called the queen of heaven and earth. Those are fairly lofty titles, aren't they? Especially the idea of co-redemptrix. And by the way, quote, Mary allegedly promised Pope John that any Catholics who wore the scapular medal which bears an image of Mary would be delivered from purgatory the first Saturday following their death. That's in the Catholic Catechism Part 3 on Ritual and Worship. Pope John Paul II, the one who is presently ruling in the Basilica of Rome, believes that Mary was the one who saved him from the assassin's bullet in 1981. He said that. He's written that. In fact, he has a motto inscribed on his coat of arms which says in Latin, Totus Tus Sum Maria." which means, Mary, I am totally yours. In fact, I remember John MacArthur telling me on one of his trips to India where he went right into the lair of Mother Teresa's home for the destitute and dying and he spoke with her and there were others, of course, who went there and I remember John speaking about that experience and he gave her a copy of the Gospel According to Jesus and encouraged her to read it. She said that she would and ultimately, through some conversations with others who went to visit her, one of John's friends had her, for whatever reason, sign the flyleaf of his Bible, and what she signed was, May you enter into the heart of Jesus through the Mother Mary. Totally Catholic. Is Mary, beloved, the mediatrix of the human race? Is she the co-redemptrix? Is that true? Is she to be venerated? And of course, Roman Catholics want to say so very clearly, veneration is not worship. You are misrepresenting us if you say we worship Mary. We do not. We venerate her. Now I would say that obviously for passages like Hebrews 13.7 that we respect those who led us, who spoke the Word of God to to us and considering their faith, we want to imitate who they were in terms of their trust in God. Hebrews chapter 11. But believe me, there's a large difference between respect and even veneration, let alone worship. Mary is not to be venerated. Mary is not to be worshipped. In fact, do you remember in Romans 15.4? Where Christ is said to be holy, He's said to be the Holy One. Well, if Mary was holy and perfect, and she's in heaven with Christ, how come she is not spoken of in that passage? How come Christ is always the one who's spoken of as the Holy One, as the one to be worshipped? How come He always receives worship? Where's Mary? By the way, did you know that it wasn't until 1547 at the Council of Trent that Mary was actually declared to be sinless? In other words, what happened from the time she lived until 1547 in Roman Catholic theology? Obviously, they considered her to be sinful. She was blessed. Mary is to be be a, a person admired. She was a servant of the Lord. She had the Mary magnificant, the idea that she was being chosen as a servant to actually be the one to birth Jesus Himself, the Messiah. She's to be admired, of course, just like anybody else who would be a faithful servant of the Lord. Respected, yes. Worshipped and venerated, no. And, and by the way, if, if we're talking about the issue of Mary herself not having any more children, that's just simply not true. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, uh, "...but..." This is the Holy Spirit. The Lord kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. That's a very important word. Until. And then there are, of course, other passages. Matthew 13. Verses fifty-five and fifty-six, John chapter two, verse twelve, John chapter seven, verse five, Acts one, fourteen, uh, Galatians chapter one, verse nineteen, Galatians chapter two, verses nine to twelve. It talks about the, uh, James, the Lord's brother. It talks about his other brothers. It talks about his sisters. It talks about his family. How can anyone substantiate the idea? Well, they do because they say, well, there's a different word for Foss, or at least a different translation. It can mean cousin, not brother. Well, that's true. But in those contexts, it's irrefutable that it's not talking about Jesus' cousins. And with regard to the idea of co-mediatrix or co-redemptrix, absolutely not. In 1 Timothy, what does the Bible tell us? It tells us under... Absolutely no other clearer word. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's no co mediatrix. There's no co redemptrix. Not at all. If that weren't enough, Titus chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Not paying attention to myths and commandments of men. First of all, this is a myth. This isn't true. When you look at Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's no mention here of Mary at all and rightly so. Now, that's not to say... That we depreciate her in the sense that she was was not a noble person. Certainly she was. And I know that some of these things may seem to all of us to be uh, lesser issues than some of these others. But I think when you put the whole ball of wax together, you're really finding out that there are people, Roman Catholics, who desperately need a different theology. They're ensnared in these myths. And we need to pray for them. We need to reach out to them. We need to see God take the gospel that has been wedded to our own hearts by faith and take that very same gospel message and reach out to Roman Catholics. My good friend Bill Shannon came out of a Roman Catholic environment. His family, Roman Catholic to this day. We had discussion about that. It's It's a very insidious thing. It pulls you in and then it ensnares you to stay there because you don't dare work around the church because in working around the church, you're working around your own very salvation. How about the freedom you have in Jesus Christ? It's glorious, isn't it? Gospel of Christ. That's what the Catholics need. Let's share it with them. Let's pray together. Our Father... Tonight we've received a feast. We've seen those who have given weeks of their lives to missions. And we have been the beneficiaries because we see in their hard work and their labor, even though, as Todd said, obscure and many times unseen, it is not unseen by you. And we've seen what the ministry of this church can have. And what a joy it is to know that the the physical labor that goes into the refurbishing of this camp can redound to Your glory. For if these things did not occur, where would these children meet? Where might they be able to sit in a, a building with a roof and four walls to hear the Gospel message? With all of the weather beating down on them, whether it's cold or hot, where would they be able to associate if folks did not go and help? Lord, as we think about the Indian tribe or we think about Roman Catholics, we're again reminded that we need to reach out to those around us. And Lord, we don't want to try to kill an ant with a sledgehammer. We don't want to try to so pounce on Roman Catholics so that they are smothered with these things. But Lord, it's it's my desire simply to arm us with with the idea of what they really do teach. And what they really do believe. So that when we go, we're prepared. We're armed. And when they tell us what they believe, we're not so shocked by it. And we can respond to it and say there's another way. In fact, it's the only way. It's the way where Christ Himself is the one mediator between God and men. And we pray that You would allow us to share this message. And that Roman Catholics would come out of a false system of addition in their religion. And come to faith, true faith in Christ. By repenting of theological error, heretical teaching, and morality that is built upon shifting sand. May we reach out to them in faith and love, believing you all of the way. In Jesus' name, Amen.